good to be here this morning at Monmouth Christian Church. Uh, Pastor Sean has quite a sense of humor. Uh, I was actually thinking the first time I met Sean uh, was at CIY. I was a youth pastor, and he was a youth. And I was teaching a class on sex and dating. It was my assigned subject. I didn't pick that. CIY said, this is what we want you to teach on. And you'd be shocked to learn that we filled up the classroom, um, and a lot of a lot of boys came to the class on sex and dating. Uh, and Sean was one of those young men, and he seemed excited to be there. And I remember this enthusiastic, freckle-faced kid. Uh, and then here I am today, and here he is, and he's all grown up, and he's a faithful man of God. It's really fun to be here today. Uh, we are getting ready to plant a church uh, in Idaho next year. And I'm working with the CEA, and the CEA is one of the missions that you all support. And so every time you give money to Monmouth Christian Church, a percentage of that gets sent to the CEA, and they send people like us to go start new churches like this so that more people can learn about Jesus. And so I just want to start by saying thank you uh, for your generosity and your commitment to seeing uh, the kingdom expand. Well, it's been a wild ride for my family the last year. Uh, in 2002, we actually started what we called Adventure Christian Church in McMinnville, and we were there 17 years, stayed uh, till the end of this last year. And about two years ago, we had an opportunity to do something exciting. Our church, along with Tigard Christian Church and then also Newburgh Christian Church, we joined together to become one church in three locations. Uh, we call that Northwest Christian Church, and that's been an exciting thing to be part of. Uh, but now we're getting ready to move and plant this church in Twin Falls. And I think that's just kind of how it goes with the church. Uh, we're always looking for new ways to expand, new opportunities to increase uh, and advance the, the gospel of Jesus. And one of the best illustrations of how I think Christ intended for his church to be is just the family. And so I'm going to share a couple of family pictures with you. Uh, the first picture is my mom's side of the family. And uh, this is a five-generation photo. Most families don't have these anymore because people are getting married later and having children later. And so it's unlikely that you're going to have five generations alive at the same time. But we did, and that's the picture to prove it. Uh, my great-grandma is the oldest lady there, and her name was Isabel Singerhouse. And uh, she had four husbands. She outlived three of them, and then Mr. Singerhouse outlived her. Well, when she died, something happened. My grandma Tucker became the new old lady in our family. And when grandma Tucker died, guess who became the new old lady? My mom. But we don't talk about it. She doesn't like talking about that, right? So uh, she, they, they died, and then people kept leveling up. On my dad's side of the family, we all have a, a name similarity. My grandfather is a man named True Nielsen. Um, he lived a very long time, and so he was the old guy for a long time. Uh, he was like 93 when he passed. He accepted Jesus at 92, so it's never too late. Uh, when he died, my dad, Curtis True Nielsen, became the new old guy, and Eric True Nielsen uh, kind of leveled up, and my son, Curtis True Nielsen II, and I realized hey, I'm only one old guy away from being the old guy in my dad's side of the family. You know, that's what happens. Life just keeps moving forward, doesn't it? And we could put your family photos on the screen and tell the exact same stories. Uh, children become adults, adults become parents, parents become grandparents, maybe great-grandparents, and then they're gone. And all new people take their place, and the whole cycle just repeats itself. Uh, they say sometimes in our world the only certain things are, are death and what? Taxes. Well, as Christians, maybe we should frame it differently. We should say the only certain things in our world is life and taxes, okay? Uh, the purpose of life, point number one, is to produce new life. And it started at creation. Let's go to God's word, Genesis 1, verse 20. Let the waters swarm with fish and other life. 
Verse 29, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. Uh, Verse 30, and I've given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has what? Life. Good, you're awake. God created sea creatures with the ability to produce new life and birds and animals with the ability to produce new life. And they all, uh, all the plants have seeds so they can produce new life and they all testify to God's nature. He's the one who brings life. And that's before we even got to people in the creation account. Genesis 2, 7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. And I love this part. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils and he became a living person. Did you catch that? Our lives are an overflow of the life that God gives. He breathed life into us. And what did he say to the first family in in Genesis 128? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The Bible says that plants, animals, people, everything that has life is designed to produce new life. And if you have the eyes to see that, you'll catch it everywhere you go. If you walk on a sidewalk anywhere in the Pacific Northwest, what do you see? You see weeds fighting for life in the cracks. I saw a couple in the parking lot, whoever's on the maintenance team, just just saying. Uh, Every eave of every house has spiders in it, building webs, trying to do what? Catch things to eat so they can live and produce more spiders. If you leave any pop can on the picnic table too long in the summer, there's going to be an army of ants fighting for that life-giving substance we call high fructose corn syrup, right? Anyone who's ever held a newborn baby in their arms, and I know many of you have, you have this sensation, this awe-inspiring sensation of, of realizing this is a brand new life. Guys, the world we live in is bursting forth with life. But I wonder if you've ever stopped to think about why is it like that? Here's why. Our God is the author of life, and that explains why his world, his creation, is teeming with life. Have you ever stopped to consider this thought, that before life began, before life existed, God had the idea of creating life. He started that thing we call life. He designed life, and he actually designed it in such a way that it would produce more life. So life is a concept that God invented one day, What have you done lately? I mean, that's pretty impressive. He came up with the idea of life. And the Bible calls him the living God over 30 times. In in, uh, Jeremiah 10.10, the Lord is the only true God. He's the living God and the everlasting King. I love that. God has no beginning. In the beginning was God. He's just there. He's ever present. Uh, He has no origins. He has no end. He exists outside of the, the confines of time. And yet he interacts with those of us living in history. He's always been alive. That's hard for us to understand. He'll never be dead. Death is not a possibility for him. Life is his nature. That's our living God. And guess what they call his son? Jesus, the son of the living God. I love the story of a Muslim man in Africa who became a Christian after hearing the gospel and his friends, his Muslim friends, were kind of shocked that he would leave Islam. And they said, why did you decide to follow Jesus? And he said, I had a vision. And he said, I was at a fork in the road. And at the end of one road, there was a dead prophet. And at the end of another road, there was the the living Savior. He said, which would you choose? That's the thing that distinguishes Jesus, by the way. From all other religious gurus or religious founders, they're all dead and Jesus is alive. 
When Peter made the great confession, Jesus said, who do you say I am? And he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So God is the living God. Jesus is the son of the living God. He raised the dead back to life. He promises eternal life. He he took people who were stuck in dead religion and brought them into a new way of life. And then he said this in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one will come to me or the father except through me. I recently heard a scientist quote that verse from memory, not a believer. And he said this in response to the claim of Jesus. He said, that is a heck of a thing to claim. And I love that. Here's a guy that doesn't know Christ and read the words of Christ, memorized the words of Christ and said, the implications of that claim are staggering. I wonder if we who call ourselves followers of Jesus have realized the implications of that claim. Jesus didn't say, I I have life, or I've got some views on life, or I've got some tips for living a good life. He said, I am the life. I am the life. And just to prove that point, when wicked men killed him on the cross for our sins, he brought himself back to life just to show them who he was because death has no power over the son of the living God. Well, there's more. I'm going to sell you some Ginsu steak knives in a minute. There's even more. Ready? Uh, If you remember that old commercial. Uh, The life-giving Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is the part of God that dwells in believers. Romans 8, 2 says, because you belong to him, to Jesus, the power of the life-giving spirit I love it when it calls the Holy Spirit. The life-giving spirit has freed us from the power of sin that leads to death. Even the spirit of God brings life. Everything he does points people or calls people or directs people toward a deeper and more satisfying life, a life lived by the power of Christ in us. So our God is the Father. He has the Son, the Holy Spirit. They're together, the Trinity, the triune God, the creators and sustainers of life. And they're calling us, church, to eternal life. And so it shouldn't surprise us that when we get into the scripture, that the word of God itself is also alive. And throughout history, ordinary people and famous people have had encounters with the word of God that changed the course of their life drastically. Just hearing it read or reading it themselves changed them forever. How? Why? Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. The words of this book are alive and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword cutting between, uh, the jo- or cutting between uh, soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It exposes, this is the part about the scripture, ready? It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Have you had that happen? Man, I've had that happen. This, 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 this book has stuff in it that's 3,000, 2,000 years old, and it was written by someone to someone, and yet when you open it yourself and read it, it's like the, the words have jumped off the page. They convicted you about sin. They, they calmed you about something that had you freaked out. It gave you direction, instruction about your marriage or your kids or your money or whatever, and it's like, man, that was written right to me, but it wasn't, but it is. How? It's alive. It's not static. It's not some uh, book with good advice or helpful hints or, or good quotes. It's more than just true. It's the words of the living God. I, I love the story of Ryan Rees, a pro skateboarder. 
I don't know a lot about skateboarding. Broke my arm on a skateboard in seventh grade. My dad said, next time you're paying for it. So I gave up skateboarding. <laughs> Ryan Rees is good at skateboarding. Rich, famous, uh, kind of into the partying kind of, kind of scene, lifestyle. Had a serious drug addiction. One night he, he came really close to dying when he OD'd. And the next morning he woke up in a hotel room. And uh, he pulled out a Gideon's Bible out of the drawer. His dad's a Christian been praying for a long time for Ryan to come to Jesus, and um, he, he, he read that the story about what Jesus did on the cross. His dead soul came in touch with the spirit of the living God, and he heard about God's love for him revealed on the cross of Jesus Christ, and he knew he had to give up and leave his old dead ways, and he called his dad on the phone and said, Dad, I just became a Christian. What do I need to do? Can you imagine being that dad? Some of you are praying for your kids. Don't give up. Well, fast forward to his new life of uh, being a Christian. He said, you know, uh, I got to this new life and I was kind of getting things together. And he said, in my old life, I, I had kind of an on-again, off-again girlfriend. And twice we got pregnant and, and uh, once with a girl and once with twin girls. And both times we just didn't feel like we could parent these children and shouldn't. And so we had abortions. Now he's married to a Christian woman, and they want to have kids, and guess what? They can't. They've tried everything. Nothing's working, and he feels like God's punishing him for his old way of life. Some of you feel that way, too. Well, when they'd totally given up, they discovered they were pregnant with triplets. (laughs) And guess what they are? A girl and a set of twin girls. I didn't even know that's possible. You got to look that up. Some people told him, hey, that's a pretty cool coincidence. And he said, no, it's not. That's God doing God business in church. Can I tell you that the business of God is life? That everywhere God goes, life overflows in his wake. I mean, let's recap so far. We live in a world bursting forth with life. Our God is the living God. His Son is the Son of the living God. We're filled with the life-giving Spirit of God. He's given us the, the living Word of God, which points us to eternal life. I wonder, what is God trying to tell us? See, the, the living God is our God. And I want to ask the question, if that's true for you, if the living God is your God, and the Son of the living God is your Savior, and you're filled with the Spirit and in the Word, what should we expect to see in our lives? What should we expect to see in our churches, in our homes, in our marriages? Can I suggest that we should see some signs of life? You know what Jesus said about his church, Matthew 16, 18. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus said, it's my church and I'm the one that's, that's building it. And so I don't necessarily need you to be smart or, or clever. I just kind of stay out of my way. You know, what, join in what you see me doing. And he said, and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail. Well, have you ever thought about this? Gates, what do they do? They just stand there. <laughs> gates aren't attacking, you know. They don't launch out against anything. They just kind of stand there. And Jesus said, uh, the gates of hell will not withstand the onslaught of Christ's church. That the powers of darkness and death cannot resist the advance of Jesus and his church. And if you don't know what all that means, it means this. We're on the winning team. That we are are sent out as ambassadors to bring new life and new light uh, to those trapped in darkness. That's what Jesus said. 
And yet, there's this weird thing about the church in America. There's so many indications that the church in America is struggling, and some would even say dying. But I read this and I go, how is that possible with all the life that God has given us? In a study in 2018 of American churches, they said that 35% of churches are in decline. 35% of churches are plateaued. That's not growing. 30% of churches are growing, like Monmouth Christian Church. 7% of churches, I should say only 7% of churches are involved in reproducing other churches, like Monmouth Christian Church. And 0% of all U.S. churches are multiplying. We only see multiplication movements happening in places like India and Africa and China. And I read those stats and I said, there's got to be some mistake here. That can't be right. How could the winning team be losing ground? In the church planning circles, we talk about this stat called the losing streak. We call it the 60-year losing streak. And what it means is this. There's not one county in one state in the 50 states where the percentage of Christians have gone up in over 60 years in a row. Not one county. In, well, what about those places with the megachurches? No. What about the, no, the only place, the only exception, which has just happened in the last few years is Hawaii. So apparently all the Christians are moving to Hawaii. Um, if you want to go with me, let's go. Um, it'll be paradise. So the, the percentage of Christians, this is what that's, those stats mean, is that we're not making disciples as fast as our, as our population is growing. You get it? So there's more people. We're, we're having more and more Christians every year, but not enough to stay with the population growth. And so the percentage of Christians is going down every year in America and has for 60 years straight. The mission of the church is to bring life to a lost and dying world. And yet so many churches are filled with lifeless saints and what we might call consumer Christians, people looking for someone to hold their hand and meet their needs. Hundreds of churches close their doors every year in our land. And if you take the, the stat, which is staggering, if you take all the budgets of the evangelical churches, churches like ours, uh, and you divide them by the number of first-time converts, the cost of a new convert in America is $1.5 million. That's, I, I can't even believe that. Our nation is filled with dying churches, but we're not dying from a lack of resources, but a lack of passion and vision for the mission of, of, of Christ's church. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And if you get to travel around and speak like I have been recently, you, you realize that in some of our churches that Satan is alive and active. He's stealing and killing and destroying people in churches. But Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus said, I left heaven's throne to come here and give you all an abundant life. I died on a cross to give you an everlasting life. They recorded my words so that you would have instructions about living a new life. And so I think it's fair to ask in light of all that Jesus has done for us, what are we doing with it? What are you doing with the life he paid for on the cross? And you meet these Christians. You know, your, your pastor, Sean, is kind of like this. You meet these Christians that are just really glad to be saved. They seem glad to be alive. And they're, they're just enthusiastic, you know. And sometimes they're the, the new Christians. You know what I mean? That, that new convert. And some of the people who have been at this for a while say, oh, they'll, they'll kind of simmer down after a while. You know, they're just excited. It's all new. I hope they never simmer down. 
I hope they're always joyful. I hope they're always filled with that new life. You know, but when you're around people like that, they make you feel like you're missing something. And sometimes we actually ask ourselves, what am I missing? You know, why am I so stagnant? Why am I so joyless? Why am I so lifeless? And that guy's so excited. How do I get out from these forms of, of dead religion and empty faith and, and get into that abundant life that we read about in Scripture? And you know, some people never have a single thought like that. Their faith is just on autopilot. I mean, they, they never think about it. They just do it. They just do what they do, and what they've always done, and they've never asked the question, what more is there? What more could be done? What's my role in the activity of God? Some people have never had a thought like that, but some have, and they wrestle with that, and they're searching, and they're asking that question, what am I missing? I mean, we're not talking about salvation. Trust Jesus. They're saved. But they see these other people, and they say, why can't I be like that? There's another level to the faith and other people have it and I want it. How do I, how do I get there? And so they search, you know, they watch the TV preachers with the big hair, you know, uh, they read the best-selling Christian book, the new one. There's always a new one. They're, they're shopping around for a new church. Maybe that's what you're doing today. You normally go to the one down the street, but today you walked in looking for something more. Uh, they're looking for a spiritual high. They're, they, they know there's something more out there, but they don't know how to get it. And here's where they're going wrong. Usually, they wrongly assume that what they need is something more for themselves. I need to learn something, gain something, find something, meet someone, get something, get more effort, put in more discipline. I, I, I'll find it, and it's something for me, and then I'll be the person I'd, I'd like to be. But here's why churches are dying and Christians are withering on the vine. Listen to this. The secret to finding that, that, that you that God has always intended for you to do is not to focus on yourself. To take the life that God has poured into you in every way possible. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, creation, Word of God. To take that new life and then do something with it. Pour it into someone else. See, Christians who aren't producing new Christians or involved in producing new Christians aren't fulfilling their purpose. And churches that aren't producing new churches aren't fulfilling part of their purpose. And there's nothing more miserable than knowing you were created to do something incredibly important and then not doing it. It's really depressing. But on the flip side, there's nothing that will fill your heart more and thrill your soul more than fulfilling your God-given purpose to create new life. And some of you are skeptical. You're like, I don't know. I've heard this. Listen, listen. I know it's true, and I see signs of it all the time. When someone gives their life to Christ and is baptized at Monmouth Christian Church, all of you smile and clap. Why? Well, you may not have realized it, but you're doing what you were designed to do, which is leading new people to Jesus, and it feels real good. How excited are you when, you're, when you have, you've been praying and praying for that person to join you at church and they finally come? And I mean, we all know they came because you walk in smiling and dragging this person around and you're like, this is my friend Joe, the guy we've been putting on the prayer card for 20 years. I mean, you're so excited, right? Why? He just came into church with you. What's the big deal? 
You know that his soul is on the line and you're so excited when he came with you. And when you're in a small group or a a Bible study and, and that new believer, like the light comes on and they get it and you saw them get it and you're like, man, that was awesome. Why do we go on mission trips to like make converts and we come back feeling like we had a conversion experience? Why do we get so excited when churches are growing and planting new churches, because all those things are expressions of the new life that God has poured into us by his spirit. And they're signs that we're actually doing what he tells us to do. I love the story of Eric Liddell, the the famous Scottish Olympian. The movie, old movie Chariots of Fire was made about his story, and, and he was nicknamed the Flying Scotsman. I want a cool nickname like that. And he was a follower of Jesus, and his famous quote was this, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. There's something about doing what we're made to do that is almost beyond explanation. And church, you and I, We're made to do something. And it's not to sit in this chair on Sunday morning. We're made to do something. And I'm telling you, if you do it, if you step out in faith and you do it, you will feel God's pleasure. What is it? What are we made to do? Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Did you catch what Jesus said our purpose is, our call is? He said to disciples, go make disciples. You people that have received eternal life, I want you to to pass it on. He didn't say, you know, try to invite someone to Easter if you can. I mean, that's a good idea. He didn't say, you know, click like on your church's Facebook page. That's your, your Christian duty. He said, I want you to take all that I've given you, all that I've poured into you, and then take it to the whole wide world. Wow, that's heavy. How are we doing with the mission? Can I ask you the question? Because I know some of you are thinking, I can't do that. Let me ask you the question. What's stopping you from being a, a conduit of life for Jesus? What's stopping you really? What's stopping Monmouth Christian Church from being a force to be reckoned with in the heavenly realms? How can we, church, be content to have our ticket to heaven knowing that there's so many around us heading to hell? As servants of the living God, how can we be so unconcerned with the spiritual death we see around us? You know, we're calling lost people trapped in darkness and destruction into the light. And that's what Jesus said in John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you'll have the light that leads to life. And I bet there's someone here this morning that feels exactly that way, that they're trapped in darkness. And Jesus said, if you will follow me, you won't have to be trapped in darkness because you will have the light that leads to eternal life. And that's our mission to be people that are so filled up with the life that God gives that we just can't help but spread it around. You know, when people see life in our marriages, they, they notice, they have these conversations where they go, how do we get a marriage like those people? And they see our kids and they say, how do we get our kids to behave? How did they figure that one out? And they come into our, our churches and they see, what are, why are all those people so happy to be in a building on Sunday morning with some guy yelling at them? What's the deal? Jesus. They see the passion we have for life, and they say, what does that guy have that I'm missing? Jesus. 
In October 2017, I was driving in a car with my friend and mentor, uh, David Case, who's the pastor up at Northwest Christian Church. And uh, we were dreaming out loud together about the idea of what it would look like to form a network of churches that would strengthen dying churches in the Willamette Valley. And David said something to me that would grab my attention. Uh, he said, you know, things are going really well at Newburgh. He said, I've got probably 10 good years left as a, a lead guy. And um, I, he said, you know, to be honest, it's going so well, I probably could just kind of coast into retirement. And then he said this, I don't want to coast into retirement. He said, I want to make a difference for the kingdom of God and not just at my church. I want to see lost people get saved and marriages restored and lives changed and the kingdom of God advance. I want, to, I want to go out. He didn't say these words, but I kind of heard between the lines. I want to go out both guns blazing. I want to cross the finish line with nothing left in the tank. I want my whole life to count for the glory of God. And you know, I didn't hear him say exactly this way. But he basically is asking, what can I still do for Jesus with my remaining time? And can I ask you the same question? Some of you are young, you have lots of time. Some of you are older, not so much. But what can you do for Jesus with your remaining time? Who can you help? Who can you reach? Who can you disciple? And man, what would happen if everybody at Monmouth Christian thought that way? What if the, the kids and youth workers said, my job is not just to teach the kids and youth, but to teach people who can teach kids and youth. And what if our kids and youth didn't just think it was their job to show up and be taught, but they believed it was already at their age, their job to bring in more youth and children and maybe to teach them themselves. What if the small group attenders, and God bless you, some of you are very faithful small group attenders, but what if you said, you know, I've been sitting in a small group for years. Maybe I've learned enough to be dangerous and I should go out and lead one myself. Your pastor would probably faint dead away. What if the reports of missionaries actually inspired us to do missions instead of just going, giving a thumbs up at the, the cool pictures from overseas? What would it look like if Christian marriages produced Christian kids that produced Christian marriages that produced more Christian kids? What would happen if churches stopped trying to control everything and preserve everything and stopped making excuses about everything and just let the abundant life that Jesus already has given us really take hold. And you know what it would look like. It would look like every member a minister. It would look like new people getting saved and baptized all the time. It would look like uh, their church's job wasn't just to stay alive and try to meet budget, but actually to get out there and make a difference in our world. And man, if our churches and our people acted like that, we would, we would change the world. And oh, by the way, that's our job. That's what Jesus said. Go out and change the world. And none of us has to do that alone. We just all have to be part of it. In 2020, my family's going to answer the call again uh, to start a church that we're going to call High Plains Christian Church. People say, why High Plains Christian Church? Like, well, it's got a higher altitude than Oregon. Well, where I'm at in Oregon. And it's nice and flat. So there you go. It's a town of 25% uh, Mormons. I think they have about 12 Mormon churches, a Mormon temple, a Mormon seminary. Uh, 50% of the people in that town have no religious affiliation whatsoever. Uh, we're going to a community with a federally sponsored refugee relocation program. I thought that was crazy when I heard that. Can you imagine being this person seeking political asylum and, and they say, well, we've got good news and bad news. The good news is you're going to America. Yes. The bad news is we're putting you in Idaho. Okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> we have a chance. I see this as an opportunity. We've got an opportunity, a chance to, to reach the nations by moving to Idaho. Who would have thought? I'm really humbled that the church that we planted when we we're 27 is our actual sponsoring church for all this. Uh, and we're so thankful that churches like you all are, have the vision to support church planning through the CEA so that we can go out and start more churches. Uh, if anything we've said today is, uh, interests you, we'd love to get you on our newsletter so you can kind of stay tuned to what's going on. And if you're in Twin Falls and on a weekend and want to come to church, uh, look us up, but not yet. We still have a couple months before we get there. So let's pray together. Father, thanks for this morning and thanks for Monmouth Christian. Uh, they've been a faithful church for a long, long time. Uh, we pray, Lord God, that as your word has gone out today, challenging us, each one of us, uh, to think about the life that we have and what we're designed to do with it, Lord, that every one of us would take seriously our responsibility, actually our, our privilege, Lord, to share the best news of our life with anyone who will listen, which of course is the good news of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And it's in his strong name we pray and everyone said,